This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Last month, a QAnon supporter won a Republican primary for a House seat. In November, it's likely that Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene will win a seat in Congress. The conspiracy theory that holds many and the elite are part of a sex trafficking cabal. QAnon supporters have increasingly moved into the mainstream. Many also attend evangelical churches. Its appeal in our world is World Magazine's cover story for this week, and also was the subject of a long-form story for MIT Technology Review. We talked about conspiracy theories in theology at length in episode 213. So if you want to go back and listen to that, I recommend it. We wanted to give special focus to what QAnon does and what it believes and all the ideology around that and also help listeners who are trying to reach family members or other loved ones who have accepted these beliefs you are listening to quick to listen where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event i'm morgan lee digital media producer here at christianity today and i'm ted olson editorial director at christianity today Ted, would be interested to hear some of your thoughts, I think, about QAnon's resonance with our world. Yeah, I remember briefly getting into a kind of Twitter discussion with someone who was saying, oh, you know, QAnon is really mostly an evangelical phenomenon. And I thought, what? How is that possible? I had associated it with it coming out of websites that were very much marked by kind of atheism and atheist activism sites, kind of like 4chan and Reddit, not necessarily known as evangelical soccer mom type of websites. But I know this is really like a big evangelical, you know, suburban Facebook-y thing. I thought, well, huh, that is interesting because, you know, I just hadn't personally encountered it a whole lot. But as I, you know, learned a little bit more about it, I thought, oh, I can see how a lot of the conspiracies that I heard in some of my more fundamentalist circles growing up about, you know, secret satanic cabals and a lot of the resonances of ritual abuse and, and people behind the people, all these kinds of things. I could see how those conspiracies would have easily fit over into QAnon. Like you said, we talked about that a little bit in the previous episode of Quick to Listen, but yeah, I'm still trying to figure out what the network is of kind of the militant atheist QAnon world and the religious kind of a post-evangelical QAnon world. So I'm here to talk about it. How about, how about you? I have to say, sometimes I think about, man, I just love being on Twitter. And I think about my Twitter friends and the Twitter community that exists out there. And then I have to come back to Earth and be like, yes, but and just recognize how big and how little Twitter is at the same time, right? And also how formative it has been on how I view news and what I read. As someone who does not really spend any time on Facebook, especially now that I'm not working on CT's Facebook pages like I used to, I'm really not on Facebook at all. Sometimes it really seems from an outsider perspective that there are completely different conversations that are being had, especially when you look at websites and folks who are getting lots of shares on their pieces, realizing that I'm not reading any of that content at all or really coming in contact with it. People seem to be kind of connecting. I mean, I think of Facebook more as just like a big thing that gets in front of a lot of people at a given time. That also kind of, you know, when you were talking about like how much has it permeated our world, so to speak, to some extent, I maybe I'm a little bit out of touch with some of those questions because I'm not on Facebook where many people are and thus unaware. I am really kind of interested in learning more of its appeal though, this specific one. I really loved the podcast that we did back in May that talked at length theologically, trying to understand conspiracy theories and trying to understand how Jesus saw them. I'm really eager to get into this, understand the specific claims that are being made here. So who's our guest to talk about this today? Our guest today is Mark Sayers. He's the senior leader of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia, and the author most recently of Reappearing Church, The Hope for Renewal and the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture. He's also the host of the podcast, Rebuilders. So thanks for coming on the show all the way from Australia, Mark. My pleasure. Yeah, I was about to say good morning. <laughs> good evening. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, Mark, let us not beat around the bush. Why don't you start by telling us what 
QAnon is? I guess my most succinct explanation of what QAnon is, is I would say QAnon is a rapidly growing global cultural political movement that is centered around a crowdsourced conspiracy theory. And to sort of break down really, I guess, the big sort of, I guess, idea architecture of what really the movement centers itself around is the idea that the world is controlled and also held back by a cabal of basically elite pedophiles. And these sort of elites are global elites, ranging from a various sort of cast of characters from members of the Democratic Party, the Clintons, to people like the Rothschilds, the great banking family, to various royals, to the Vatican, to members of Wall Street and celebrities. And essentially, this sort of evil, nefarious force in the world is, in this moment, being pushed back essentially by President Trump, who's being aided by various patriots which within the sort of US political, but particularly the military and military intelligence who are pushing back against this cabal. The moment that we're sort of in is moving towards something called the storm, which is really this sort of reckoning, a judgment day, if you like, for this cabal of global elites and pedophiles. And then once that sort of reckoning, which will be, depends, again, to this, there's a lot of variance within this movement. It's quite big and broad at the moment, but essentially this sort of storm will come and bring judgment. And some people would see that as imprisonment. Others would see that actually as death. And then after that, sort of this golden age for America and the world will come and all of this sort of has been sparked really by a mysterious internet board poster who posts on various places like 4chan and so on, who is known as Q. Q puts out these things which are called drops, which are these little sort of, you know, some of them are sort of leaky about things that particularly could happen with sort of claiming to have insider knowledge of what's happening in the Trump White House, but also the world. Q sort of, you know, appears to be someone who claims to be sort of a, a personality who's linked to military intelligence and sort of like telegraphing plays that are going to happen in this grand drama happening in the world. Now, this is this something that it precedes things like the Jeffrey Epstein arrest and, and some of that stuff? Or is it something that kind of, was it accelerated by the Jeffrey Epstein arrest? I'm wondering, you know, a lot of these things require some sort of truth, like <laughs> universally agreed upon truth to kind of really catch. And I'm wondering if this was something that was how the kind of high profile Jeffrey Epstein case where he did have this kind of elite group of people where he had procured young women for sexual abuse. I wonder if if there's a connection between those two stories. There definitely is. And one of the really interesting things is almost in looking at the QAnon phenomenon, you see that it emerges from this sort of political and cultural milieu, really almost like of the mid 2010s, so just before the 2016 US election and just after that. So obviously Epstein was in that sort of discussion and already online, Epstein was being brought up as a case which seemingly seemed, you know, corrupt before it really gained mainstream media attention. It was happening around the internet, but also other things like information wars, the rise of Anonymous, the the hacker collective to WikiLeaks and Julian Assange to the Clinton email leak around the 2016 elections. And all this sort of, I guess, this sort of milieu of disinformation, you know, Russian hacking, information warfare, and really sort of the emergence of Q, who emerges with his first post in October 2017 on 4chan, sort of emerges from that space. So it's definitely linked to real world things happening, which I think, yeah, accelerates its power. Ted kind of got at this with his last question, but when exactly did QAnon start? Some of it would, you would predate the actual emergence of Q as someone posting a particular message, yeah, which happened in October 2017. Before that, there were already people sort of going through the huge amount of data released by WikiLeaks and also the Clinton and John Podesta, who was Hillary's campaign manager. And there was a number of things floating around other conspiracies, Pizzagate. There was also this particular conspiracy theory that the Clintons and other global elites linked to a particular sort of avant-garde artist and, you know, Beyonce were engaged in these sort of satanic rituals. You can sort of see it coming together, but then it takes this name and becomes really the Q anon phenomenon when Q starts posting. Can you kind of summarize Pizzagate for those who don't know it? <laughs> <laughs> so basically when when all this trench of emails was released which was you know politically incredible it was this incredible moment and like a game-changing moment in the 2016 election they were put up all online by wikileaks people started pouring through them and because there was just such a vast amount of information it was crowdsourced and so you had people who were doing genuine 
journalism and genuine stuff and looking what was in there. And there was all kinds of interesting things, like members of the Democratic Party who were trying to find UFOs and all these like, strange things which add to all of this. But there was a repeated mention when people did word searches for pizza. In some ways, I see this as sort of pattern recognition. So people began to say, you know, what if pizza actually meant something else? And then there were people who then threw it back to early internet culture, particularly around pedophilia and child pornography online, that pizza was some sort of code word for that. And then this theory began to, again, if it's been crowdsourced, the theory begins to be crowdsourced and grow. And this sort of eventually comes to this point where they found that there was some sort of fundraiser or dinner with some leading Democrats at a particular pizza restaurant. And a young man who was quite radicalized by this experience then turned up, I think, with an assault rifle wanting to free the children. And that's when Pizzagate really exploded into the public mainstream. You know, this was also, there's people who would allege that this was used by various sort of people practicing the dark arts of political influence and using oppositional people we traditionally would use oppositional research and there's some names out there of people who boosted this online. Pizzagate, as you acknowledged, is linked to this sex trafficking claim. I, I don't necessarily think it's intuitive for me to understand that as being some sort of euphemism for pedophilia or sex trafficking, but it sounds like this was an internet meme or thought long before all of this and this was maybe a, a concern of many folks who were very online. Could you give more context about that specific? Well, apparently this actual term pizza, and there were some other ones, I can't remember, I think there were some other fast food terms, apparently in the dark web actually is code language for people who are searching out for child pornography. My understanding is that it was rather than typing out child pornography, some people who are interested in child pornography would use the abbreviation CP, which then in kind of internet, in the internet world, people would also say referred to cheese pizza. It was the abbreviation being used for both things, kind of internet jokesters deliberately conflating the two is my understanding of, of how those two things became then conflated. And which seems to be a lot of the QAnon thing. Like it just seems like a lot of the stuff started off as some like idiot kid making a joke somewhere and then someone picking it up as if it were some inside government guy saying this is really happening. Is this a joke gone bad? That's the question I keep coming back to on this thing. There's a few theories. There's one is that, and there have some people come out, I think there was some Italian anarchists who sort of claimed that this was a joke they started to play on the right. Others have claimed, yeah, that it's sort of just an internet thing getting out of control. There's other people who believe they've actually found Q, who is, you know, allegedly one of the guys who backing the 8chan sort of message board. Other people see, you know, this is an intelligence operation. And then other people see as all of the above. What are the claims that QAnon is making that are specifically attractive to Christians? Because obviously there's many <laughs> political claims that are being made here. But theologically, what are you seeing? If you look back over the last sort of 10 plus years in the evangelical church, there has been a, a serious justice effort to free people from child trafficking and sex trafficking. So there's an element that people are already interested in those things. This would be attractive to them. Also a real sense that there is high level corruption in the world, particularly after the global financial crisis. And for people who may be living in areas where they felt that they've been ripped off in a sense by a disconnected elite, there is a resonance with that is a story which explains their experience of the world. I think there's also a sense too, where particularly for America, American evangelicals, there's a consolation of returning to a time of national greatness when America feels as if it's in decline. And there's also a sense that as America feels that it's divided, there's one of the things about Q is that it really, you know, they have this sort of saying where it's like this unifying sort of thing, which people can join in at a time of division. Interestingly, also, it sort of speaks in the language of spiritual warfare and has these sort of contours of end times theology. It uses biblical verses. It has a sense of the apocalyptic. If you look at that idea of the storm, this golden era coming for America and the world, there are some messianic elements. One of the beliefs held by some QAnon sort of followers is that John F. Kennedy Jr., who died in 1999 in a plane crash, you know, is sort of going to come back almost as a messianic figure. And there was actually people expecting that to happen and sort of turning up to events that he would appear. And there was even belief that he would be Trump's running mate. So sort of you see a lot of Christian sort of elements there, you know, the ideas of, you know, the satanic panic and so on, you know, this this sort of attenuation of some of those things. There's also a sense too that I, I made up a term 
thinking about this, which I, I would call post-post-Christianity. And there's a sense where the US is, I think, dealing with the reality of moving to a place of post-Christianity. As, as an Australian, I'm often asked, will America become more post-Christian like you are in Australia or Europe? But I see uh, something emerging in the US, which is very different to our post-Christianity or even European post-Christianity, which is much more religious. It's really interesting. Like, So there's an element that it's almost a secularization of spiritual warfare. So it's all this stuff like, yes, there's a satanic elite, but instead of like captured in, say, a book like Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness, it's politicized. So instead of these, you know, spiritual strongholds over places, it's actually, you know, members of the Democratic Party or the British royal families. And I think also at a time of hyper-politicization of everything in American life, it offers a way, an interface between the spiritual experience and the political experience for a lot of American Christians. What's interesting too, I think it's providing a unifying space during COVID. And there's a sense where there's been an acceleration of disconnection from being physically in church. And a lot of people got online and almost been radicalized or discipled in this. So it's sort of a post-embodied, post-post-Christianity. Yeah, I definitely am seeing that. And I'm wondering, in some ways, I see that it's, it's baked into some of the evangelical undercurrents. There is a little bit of an evangelical resentment of elites that this helped to play into. But I am wondering about the turn here towards a little bit more cult-like behavior. There was so much antagonism among the kinds of Christians that would be attracted to QAnon. I just hear something like, oh, you know, there was kind of this thought that JFK would be Trump's running mate and think, that sounds completely bogus. Eventually, these kinds of evangelicals <laughs> did not like JFK. Are there multiple QAnons or is, is there kind of multiple facets of this theory where some of them are, you know, more evangelical friendly and some of them are more weird atheist kid in a basement friendly? Yes. I mean, that, that, that's been the most fascinating thing for me. So I think it first came onto my radar, something I'm observing in the United States, seeing it connected to Republicans and evangelicals and, you know, following a predictable pattern. But I think it really began to hit when I began to see it in Australia and see it not amongst evangelicals as much as other communities. So in Australia, it's growing very fast amongst new ages. It's also growing very fast amongst the anti-vaxxing community in Australia. It's also growing amongst some ethnic communities in Australia as well. The thing I'm becoming really fascinated is the incredible rapid radicalization of people getting on board with this. Last week in Berlin, around 38,000 people protested against the lockdown laws, and many were wearing Trump t-shirts. Many were wearing QAnon signs. Around 300 of that group attempted to storm the Reichstag. Some of them were far right. But you're seeing this really weird coming together of disparate groups. I've had conversations with Catholics who this is becoming a phenomenon in Catholic churches where you now have this quite radical form of Catholicism that's blending with with QAnon, which actually sees the Vatican as part of this corrupt elite. So it's an unusual radical Catholicism that's anti authority and anti-Vatican, which is interesting. I was reading about this today, which was just mind-blowing, that this is now beginning to affect some Iranian opposition groups, like the MEK, who are designated terrorist group, are now being radicalized into QAnon. Osama bin Laden's niece two days ago, Noor bin Laden, came out publicly as a supporter of QAnon. Even I was reading today about a Canadian artisanal like meat page where people were like talking about meat sausages. And people got radicalized on there. There's Peloton fitness groups, CrossFit fitness groups, where everyone's like on message boards, where everyone's becoming radicalized. I started seeing this as like, oh, this is an evangelical phenomenon. But now I'm seeing it go. I mean, this is in India. This is reaching Japan. You're seeing protests on the street of Japan. This is going at an incredible speed, where I think you're seeing a really interesting new phenomenon. The weird bit of it, like that question around the atheist bits, seeing Berliners with Trump t-shirts and Bible verses blows my mind. (laughs) Everything I know about Europe and Berlin and seeing Osama bin Laden's niece wearing a Trump USA gear on Lake Geneva. I was at the shops here in Melbourne at the butcher on two weekends ago 
we have to buy law wear masks in public. And I see two guys with sort of dreadlocks, these two sort of white guys with dreadlocks who hear very sort of hippie look, or we call them ferals. It's like a subculture. And they've got Stars and Stripe t-shirts on and Q t-shirts. And I'm just like, I, I have no, I got, this is where I think I start to go, like, this is something I've never seen before. The global influence of this is at such a rapid rate is a phenomenal thing I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Morgan mentioned at the top of the show some of these articles that have come out on the particular attraction among evangelicals, though. And what's interesting to me is both the MIT and the World Magazine article, these folks who were highly attracted, but not, you know, but apparently not fully on board. You know, people who are not like, they don't believe quite everything about the, you know, satanic cabals eating babies kinds of stuff. But the idea of there being this kind of deep state or Trump having some sort of behind the scenes plan where he is gathering a storm or something like that. They're like, well, I don't know. It seems, you know, some of it seems to bear out. It's not an organized movement. Like there's nothing to actually join. There's no like specific group of of tenants to, to sign on to, right? What 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 are the behaviors of someone who is in QAnon? Is it all individualized or is there an actual community community? I think there's a definite online communities growing. I was reading today about Christian ministry who's now planting QAnon churches. What? They basically, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, and basically their explanation was to read the Bible through the lens of QAnon. And some of the QAnon themes around time travel and so on, they're now saying that QAnon is providing the hermeneutical lens to then see how things like time travel actually fit into the Bible. So they're planting sort of online services, you know, and this has happened during lockdown. There's definitely significant online gatherings. And then you see other elements. So there's even things like there's sort of an oath that at one point a lot of QAnon people took around the world, including uh, Lieutenant Colonel Flynn, I think I hopefully got his name right, who was sort of, I think he was intelligence chief for Trump at the beginning, but then ended up being prosecuted. He took this oath sort of publicly so there's there is this element is the uh this is the where we go where we go one we go all is that that, yes. that kind of that yes that, that saying yeah there is elements of sort of making a public admission of faith of joining a, a faith group there's also like spillover so i think that the question of there's a bunch of people in these evangelical churches where you may have your hardcore q followers who are joining up they're spending huge amounts of time online relationships are breaking down with friends and family but then there's a really interesting i think parallel to some of the language used around this like if you listen to the language that's used by q people and by president trump around the deep state really that's borrowing of a term that we have from you know turkish politics and and also sort of Egyptian politics, where you have a political culture that's going into a real, a real crisis and decay, where in Turkey, the conservatives would believe that there was this sort of leftist deep state. The leftists believed there was this sort of fascist or Islamicist sort of deep state, and the Kurds believed there was this anti-Kurd deep state. And what's interesting in in the sort of American scene, seeing that language of seeing this concept of deep state conspiracies, unable to trust anyone. So I think that's actually indicative of actually a breakdown of political culture. So there's an element that you're seeing that flow in as well. And, and this is helping people to process that sort of move from sort of democratic liberalism breaking down somewhat, it feels like at the moment. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
I really am loving all of this analysis and information, but I want to ask some apologetics questions too, because there are a lot of people out there who don't really know how to have conversations with folks that they're concerned have been influenced by QAnon. Mark, if I have a loved one who I think is hanging out in these parts of the internet and adopting some of these beliefs, where should I start and how I want to engage them? First thing, it sounds obvious, but I would pray for them and I wouldn't just pray for them. I would get a bunch of people praying for them. My belief is that there is actually spiritual forces that are at play here. I am, as you've probably heard me as I speak about this, interested in all the political and sociological elements of it. But I also have a deep belief in a biblical theology of powers and principalities. When I see something going so fast across the world that's affecting so many churches, I put up on my Twitter the other day, you can ask me questions about culture, I'll do it on one of our Rebuilders podcasts, and, and was contacted with a lot of people whose families are actually being broken up by this, and churches are really being led astray by this. You know, I see this as there's actually spiritual forces at play, and to not enter into this without real prayer covering for this person, and particularly that really, I think a spirit of truth will come. So I get prayer covering for this person. The second thing is, I think it's really important to love people. I think there's been different times in this conversation where, you know, you hear things like time travel or John F. Kennedy Jr. coming back or people in Berlin acting in this completely unusual way and trying to storm parliament. There's an element when you can laugh at this, you know, there's bits where this just seems so outlandish. But for someone who's in the midst of this, you know, how these things can happen, it can happen very quickly. So there's an element that I actually think, you know, a lot of what these people are, are looking for is love and acceptance. I think that, that fact that this has accelerated during COVID when so many people have become disconnected, that a lot of these people, I think, are finding a sense of meaning in these online communities. I think also we're in a moment where it's really hard, particularly, I think, in American life especially, to talk about what you actually really feel. There's an element of cancel culture and people are afraid and everything's so politicized to go into a space where you then can share without fear of judgment. I think for people who are loving people like this, that's part of their fear. That if I shared this with you, you're going to think I'm nuts. And you're like everyone else that's gone crazy in cultures, how they see it. So I think loving people, not mocking them. But then I think also there's just an element of asking Socratic questions. So in a sense, very gently putting the burden of proof back on people. Like I'm really interested in that idea. Can you you know share some more? Because I'm struggling to believe that the government could organize something that big. Help me out there. So in a sense, engaging with the person, but doing that in, I think, in a really loving way. When I was in high school, our youth minister did this really interesting thing where for a summer program, we had these kind of bunch of highly engaged kids. This was in Hawaii, which is an interesting place to grow up. He would take us around to different groups, different non-Christian places. And we would just talk, listen to people. So we went to, you know, the Mormon temple in Hawaii. And we went to a Christian science service where it was a kind of a testimony service. Went to a few other places. A couple of them were a little more cult-like. Because, you know, I, not something I'd encourage all youth pastors to do. It strikes me as a slightly, slightly dangerous spiritually. But also it was probably one of the most formative things. Not because of hearing these people's views, but we'd come back and we'd debrief at some length, uh, we'd go in kind of knowing what these various groups believed. Then we'd come back and debrief, and a lot of it was, you know, what do you think about this? You know, what did what did you hear that you know sounded sounded interesting to you? We would kind of get cranked up about like, oh, I can't believe that they would think this. The stuff that we found kind of literally incredible. He always had this interesting turn of <laughs> he turned the question back on us and say, so how is that different than if someone came into your service and heard things you were saying and would say that? That's beyond belief, you know, especially when we went to this uh, Christian science testimony service. And we just had a hard time believing, oh, we'll get into Christian science, but just things that we were like, that doesn't, that just seems like framing the facts to fit your view of what happened. It's like, you know, what, how is that different than when people give testimonies at our church? How much we think of this as kind of a dangerous cult? How much do we think of this as kind of a new religious movement? How do we think of it as kind of an alternative religion? If we have a loved one who's starting to watch YouTube videos on this kind of thing, how worried should we be? Because it is spiritually dangerous, but how much should we treat it as if someone were interested in, say, Mormonism or Hinduism? How how freaked out should we be when we hear our loved ones engaged in this? And how much should we think, my religion can sound a little bit strange too, so I understand this sounds really strange to me. As I looked at it, I began to see it less as a conspiracy. I mean, I, you know, there's an element still we call it a conspiracy theory, but it's a, really a new religious movement. And 
I'd almost put a new, new religious movement in. I wonder if it's the first great first internet religion. It's not the only one out there. There are other online internet religions growing and other conspiracy theories flying around. This is just one of them. But I think there is some concern in it. You know, we have seen this spill over into real world violence. There was a man who basically sort of went in an armored truck on the Hoover Dam. There was another man who became radicalized and tried to kill the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. There's an element, you know, if you've got groups of people, again, the Berlin example of, you know, people trying to sort of storm the Reichstag, and and some of them were Reichsburgers or far-right sort of people. But the fact that it's sort of in this milieu of borderline far-right thought. Now, it's interesting, I don't think a lot of people are going into it, but part of the sort of history of some of the thoughts that are on display here. There's a sense where I can understand people concerned about child trafficking, but there's a very, very old and you know, really horrible idea, which goes way back to the early Middle Ages of something called the blood libel, which goes back to the idea that in Europe, some Christians had, it was, it was really a slander that Jewish people were drinking the blood of children. And that somewhere there was this, think about Jewish people, often maligned as sort of a global elite. That's one of the sort of sometimes sort of dog whistles used about Jewish people. And why did they often work in finance? Because in Germany, Christians stopped them from working in other industries. That was the only industry they could go into. And then they were attacked for that. And all throughout the Middle Ages, we saw the blood libel often turn into pogroms. That spread into the Islamic world. Jewish people experience the same thing in the Islamic world. So many of conspiracy theories end up echoing anti-Semitic tropes. And there's a famous document, which was most likely forged by the Tsarist Russian secret police, the Okhrana, but it's called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is this document that there's this secret cabal of Jewish people who run the world. And the Rothschilds are often linked into that, the great European banking family who were Jewish. And a lot of the echoes of this are that, that there is a global elite somewhere who are controlling the world and who are eating the blood of children. So even though a lot of people don't realize this, there is a definite anti-Semitic element to this. So I think there's some of the things alongside the spiritual dangers that we need to be aware of. Also, just lastly, I think there's, I've not seen something move this fast and have the ability to affect politics this radically. So there's an element where we can say, you know, here's this phenomenon online and still be respectful in the American political system soon that there will be people making decisions who are operating from this worldview, which has a very sort of us and them sort of Manichaean worldview, which I think has dangerous potentials. You know, I still wonder how much of this is people seeing how what crazy things they can throw out there and have people believe them. Even the people who are, you know, joining the government, I wonder if they're like, oh, you know, QAnon is useful for me to say that I believe so that I can get elected versus people who actually believe it. This goes back to the, you know, you're mentioning the blood libel, which is definitely, you know, there's echoes there. There's echoes, like we said, of the 1980s, you know, satanic panic where people thought that all these kids were being abducted and, and sold them to satanic cults. Oh, there's a lot of these things in these, you know, Jack Chick tracks I, gr- I grew up with, you know, those little cartoony evangelistic tracks. Those were so full of uh, crazy conspiracy theories about powerful elites and people in the churches and in the government conspiring. But part of the reason these catch on is that it, we are in crazy times. We are in crazy times. There are echoes in reality as well. So, you know, when I was reading a little bit about these, the, the QAnon believes there's people, you know, drinking babies' blood because it will it will make them healthier. It reminded me of the stuff I was reading in, you know, like Wired magazine and and MIT Technology Review and these other places about these startups like LVN that are trying to take, you know, young people's blood, literally, like the therapeutic potential of of young blood, where they're taking young people. Now this is like, you know, like like 18 and 21 year olds, you know, pumping that blood into older folks to try to get, you know, re, you know, these rejuvenation powers. In theory, there might be some sort of science behind that. But I'm like, if you're reading about startups making millions of dollars of investors to kind of like go seek out young blood so that as part of these billionaire Silicon Valley guys who think that having younger blood in their system will help them live longer. Stuff like QAnon does not sound insanely crazy. It sounds like, yes, I have heard that there are billionaires who want young blood. And it's part of the reason why the QAnon line of, oh, go research this for yourself, where as you start researching falsehood, there are enough whispers of similar things that are happening in truth. I can see how this could become very, very insidious. But as someone who wants to help our loved ones kind of come out of this, it does seem like trying to convince them out of it is going to be a hard road. Do you think it's harder to pull someone out of QAnon than it is to pull someone out of Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or some sort of more 
mainstream thing that sounds like Christianity but isn't? The difference with the internet is speed. You know, without going onto a slight tangent here, but you know, I've been reading recently how Zoomers online and the whole political culture of Zoomers online, where you know they talked about you know what gender fluidity was to millennials, political fluidity is to Zoomers, and you know reading these stories of Zoomers who are becoming now followers of Kim Jong Un online, and then four weeks later they're like a you know following Franco, and there's almost this sort of edgy trying to follow the most crazy political things, but then they change their stances. You know, reading about QAnon people, a lot of them become disillusioned very quickly because there's these real promise. It's almost like a video game, like Q drops these little hits. I sort of wonder whether actually someone who's in an embodied community that's multi-generational, it would be harder to get them out of this, where I wonder whether, you know, these people will be believing this in three years. But I guess also my fear is it's a little bit like a forest fire that goes really quickly and the potential of that. And probably, you know, speaking my bias here, you know, I heard a, a talk by Prime Minister of Singapore at the beginning of the year, and he said, you know, one of the things that we need to do to protect Singaporeans' diversity is protect ourselves from jihadism and the American culture war. And I was like, wow. And, you know, Australia's, <laughs> Australia's response to coronavirus has been, you know, I'm in a state which has been in the longest lockdown in the developed world. And we've had tremendous coherence left and right working together, haven't heard heaps of conspiracy theories. And then in the last sort of three or four weeks to just see the QAnon stuff coming and then seeing a protest downtown and them wearing QAnon. Like for me, it feels now like this is a country overseas sort of dysfunction spewing into our political scene, which is alien to us. And so there's an element of a forest fire, I feel like this, like America's in a season of hyper dysfunction, but that's now going, <laughs> it's being spread throughout the world. And there's a sense where, you know, reading a lot about how mosques were dealing with Islamic radicalization and radical Salafi sort of indoctrination into mosques and imams having to deal with this with their young people. There's a very similar element when I read how this is affecting churches at the moment. So I don't know if I come from a different perspective on this. Because you're in Australia? Is that what you're saying? Yes. It's it's like a foreign influence, which is really weird, which is coming into us. You know, to see people wearing Stars and Stripes t-shirts breaking the law in your country is a really weird thing. As, as a culture felt like as Australians, we're pushed into this lockdown and being all together and being unified. And then seeing this thing coming from outside, it's a really weird feeling that I've never experienced as an Australian before. So what would you say then to leaders and pastors who are in the States right now who may feel a variety of things? Overwhelmed. It's not my problem. I don't know where to begin. <laughs> what does your outside perspective offer you as far as what you can relay back to them? My, my outside perspective is that th there's a definite tone in the United States at the moment, which I think you see echoed not just in QAnon, but it's, there's a definite sense of the system is overwhelmingly corrupt, needs to be burnt down. You almost feel that sense. And I think the internet has meant that nuance in that. So there's elements of what elements of systemic injustice, what elements of corruption, what elements of political discourse that have become decayed. I think pastors have a real weapon in nuance. The problem is we have uh, an online environment which works against that. But my, my experience in talking to friends is they're getting it from multiple angles. So they've got QAnon people in their church. They've got people who are further on the right, further on the left, multiple different things. But there's an overarching thing of this country is heading to a crisis. And, you know, I would say there's a sense of inviting people into a humility, inviting people into actually let's, let's pray for our country from a position of real humility versus, I guess, the grandstanding that happens from so many different people at the moment. There's an Australian pollster who works in Australia and the UK. You know, he just wrote yesterday in our paper that they just did a massive sort of global thing of what sort of leadership do people want during the pandemic? And the two things were inspiring and innovative. And I think there's an element of moving from a defensive position to actually inspiring people of what an innovative vision of what America and the church could look like after this period. I think so many people are looking for that reality, but it's doing apologetics on your feet, painting an uh, inspiring, innovative vision of what God could do in the United States. Let's talk about that for a second, because you know, you're know you a pastor, and I'm sure you have the same feeling that a lot of my pastor friends have, that like everyone wants pastors to preach about you know their pet topic. Get this at Christianity. What are some of the triggers that would make you as a pastor think, 
this may be one of those few things. I maybe should use the pulpit to warn my congregation about QAnon. What would trigger that for you? And then what would maybe be a sign that, you know what, maybe I just need to watch and listen a little bit longer and and keep this to, you know, individual counseling and one-on-one discipleship? I always notice when something goes beyond just a couple of voices to where it gets bigger. And sometimes also something crosses over the spectrum into the media where it's being spoken about. So there's a sense that when you realize this isn't just a couple of people, there's an element that whenever I've tried to approach something like this, I always come at it from a much more meta element. I feel like if you just hit it front on and say, let's talk about QAnon versus, you know, talking about the fact that as a culture, we're seeing these big trends where people are frustrated with elites. And it can look like this on the left. It can look like this on the right. It can look like this online. So in a sense, always sort of looking at the bigger pattern and talking about it in that way, I find people are much more receptive necessarily when you just come directly front on with something like this. And I think often laying a biblical framework first is a really helpful way to begin of how the Bible offers a greater hope, you know, how the Bible looks at you know, where history's going, how the Bible looks at justice first, and then sort of playing off that. I also see that this is a time where increasingly pastors, particularly in the United States, have people coming at them with a whole variety of things that they want them to address. And I also, you know, hear the, the exhaustion of lots of pastors of how do they get across all these things and be an expert to all of these things as well. And I think there's also a time for humility in pastors to say, hey, I'm not an expert on COVID-19. <laughs> I defer to the experts or I defer to people who know more about this or check out this video or read this this article over here and to not feel the pressure to be all things to all people because it's increasingly we're moving from a complicated world to a complex world, which we can't keep up with. From your outsider to American Christianity and specifically American evangelicalism perspective, you know, what are you seeing that made our church vulnerable to this? And what ways would you want to specifically encourage us in this area and potentially also offer feedback on or rebuke? I know as an Australian, I'm a minority as a Christian. The first church in Australia was burnt down. I've never expected to have power as a Christian in my country. In all the COVID stuff that our government, so we have these weekly press conferences every week, the government will talk about, you know, this is happening and they're really good at communicating and it's great, but it's always, so this is when you can get back to the football. This is when you can go and get a coffee and we have to go and find, you know, Appendix 27 of what that means for religious services. And that's just how it rolls in our country. You know, my sense is that what America is going through is a shaking of cultural Christianity. You know, my friend Dave Kinnaman did, you know, the Connected Generation report for Barna. And, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting is I've always thought of America as a much more Christian culture than Australia. And in that breakdown of millennials, they had those who are resilient disciples and those who are habitual Christians. What I found so interesting is the number of resilient disciples who are those who followed the Bible in Australia is almost per capita is almost the same amount as in the US. The difference and the reason why the American church is bigger is there's a heck of a lot more habitual Christians or cultural Christians. And I feel like what's happening is you're going through an intense shaking of those people off. I don't have many of those people in my church. So in a sense, I'm freed from a lot of that. I realize that in the post-Christian society of Australia, I'm building a remnant church. I'm looking for those who really believe this stuff. The average young adult at my church has no Christian friends. There's this sense where I think you guys are coming into this space and it's scary and there's a sense of loss of power. There's a sense of a loss of position that even I think even the response to COVID-19 of some churches has been, is this more about response to COVID-19 or is this actually about pastors who are afraid of actually losing that pulpit? I knew when when COVID-19 hit, I lost a lot of power. I I said to my people, you've got the ball now. (laughs) I'm just here to cheer you on. You're doing church in your homes. We, we haven't met since March in, in congregations, and I don't think we're going to meet this year, well into next year, possibly till a vaccine. To me, that is a handing across to the New Testament vision of the priesthood of all believers. I believe there's an invitation in front of the American church to step actually into a redemptive, humble moment, a moment of actually hungering after God because you don't have things of the world, you don't have power and influence. In Australia, we have a political system where the church is often forgotten about. But bizarrely, we've got an evangelical Christian at the moment who secretly will sort of do this prayer on his iPhone, which is almost hidden that no one sees. Australia is a great place to live. 
and Australia has a lot of things that Americans would be afraid of or Christians would be afraid of seeing happen in their culture. But hey, the church is here and there's great things happening. I see this moment, the American church, there is a reckoning. Maybe after COVID stops, less people will come back, but maybe actually those who really want it will come back. I feel like QAnon plays into a sense of people have lost power. So this gives them an explanation. But I think the Gospels are just offered a much better explanation that actually is not the size of the church. It's the size of the God <laughs> who, who we worship. So I, I have a sense that America is going to go through a reckoning, but I have a real hope and my prayer, and I'm praying for America almost every day because I have so many friends there. I go there often when Australians could leave our country, you know, but I have a sense that actually something will rise after this and it's actually going to be a much healthier God-focused church. A bunch of crazy stuff will happen between now and then. I have a real sense that there's actually a bunch of leaders out there who don't feel like they have a place or a position, but actually currently are being prepared for the next season that God has in the United States. Thank you, Mark, for offering those thoughts. You had mentioned a couple minutes ago about pastors deferring to experts on these things. Are there any places that you might point people to in terms of resources when it comes to talking to other folks about QAnon? There's actually not really like a book. You know, it's, it's happening very quickly. I'm sure a QAnon book will appear soon. I don't know of one. And also, I think it's quite, you know, morphing and changing all the time. There's been a number of good articles in mainstream publications. There's a good Atlantic article. There's a bunch. There's a Voice of America article on the international uh, effects of this. The Conversation had one. Even ABC Australia had one, which was really good. So if you go and look, um, what's happened to online is because um, a lot of the tech giants are actually realizing the sort of radicalizing nature of QAnon is that a lot of the bad sites are actually being taken off now. So I just would encourage people to read widely around this and get different perspectives on the phenomenon. All right. Thank you, Mark, for some just fascinating information and really thought-provoking analysis on this. If people have feedback for us and want to kind of offer their thoughts on this conversation and maybe even give their insights about how they've had conversations with loved ones about this feel free to send us an email. We are at podcasts with an S at christianitytoday.com, podcasts at christianitytoday.com, or you can go on Twitter. We are at CT Podcast. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy recently. Ted, over to you. I am still loving board games, and we went out and bought some <laughs> new ones. I'm going to give another board game update. <laughs> game my family played this weekend was called the cartographers you know there's this whole series of roll and write games where you in most cases you're rolling die and then filling in a square and very fun but this one you are drawing cards actually making a little map so you would draw a thing and you have to draw kind of a tetris type shape of you know, forests or villages or, or that kind of thing score depending on if you've surrounded your mountains with a certain kind of terrain and that kind of thing competing against other people and you know i'm looking forward to us getting back to the workplace because this is one of those games morgan that would go over really well at the office if we had our game yes! still going yes we might actually be able to do it over zoom because one of the great things about cartographers as well as a lot of these roll and write games is so long as everyone has a pad uh, mm -hmm. everyone has the same kind of paper in front of them they can play kind of an infinite number of players i'd love that maybe we should do a a, a quick to listen zoom board game some someday that would be fun for all the zoom boarders we I heard from <laughs> a few people this last a special episode on board games, games would be delightful that would be fun so yeah cartographers very fun you're on Twitter at week. Ted Olson. Oh, my Twitter at Ted Olson. Yeah. Yeah. At, at me with your board game recommendations. Or honestly, if you don't care about board games and you're like, Ted, shut up about board games already. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. Tweet, tweet, <laughs> tweet that at me. I, I, we'll, we'll talk about something else. I'll give you another moment of joy. If you're like, I'm, I reject this one. Give me a different precious moment. I'll give that to you. All right. So my precious moment is the fact that I think, you know, Ted, I took a day trip to Indiana. <laughs> I will say that COVID has really opened my eyes to what is around me. And I've always been, I would say, pretty good about doing that in Chicago, but I've done that more in the suburbs, you know, to the extent that you think of Indiana as a suburb of Chicago. Oh, but, <laughs> you have offended all of our Hoosier <laughs> listeners. <laughs> well, so I went to I went to South Bend, Indiana and around there, and I had a really great day. I would say we were out of the part of Indiana that's a suburb of Chicago because we were actually in Eastern time when we were there, as opposed to the part of the state that's on the same time zone as Chicago. I went flower picking and 
ate at the restaurant that you recommended. And by eating at the restaurant, I mean, we picked up food and we ate it at the park in front of this beautiful fountain. Yeah, there's a really nice restored fountain there and Rose Garden, which apparently is across the river from Mayor Pete's house. So I think I might have seen Mayor Pete's house through the trees. Then we went to a pizza farm for dinner that night, which is essentially you drive into, at least the pizza farm I went to, you drive into this farm and you sit in your parking space, which is kind of like car camping. You have about that much space and then people bring tables or chairs or drinks or whatever. And then you order pizza on your phone and then they deliver it to you on a golf cart. <laughs> so that is wonderful. What, what a perfect COVID dining experience. It really was. It was perfect. We were outside. We we're on the farm. Everyone was distanced. Thank you to the New York Times for educating me about the Midwest. <laughs> so that was you're, you're yes. so self-conscious about that. I am New York Times telling me stuff about the Midwest that I don't know. I mean, it's the Tribune's job. I, I, that's true. But you know, the Times has bureaus. Just tell me this: Did I steer you wrong on the mac and cheese? Was it good? Of course, it was good. You're, you're I had a mac and cheese connoisseur. Yes, I had artichoke mac and cheese. Oh yeah, I it was that's like what the, I had too. the spinach yeah. artichoke one. I've actually made the the soup version of that before, so it it tasted very similar to that in a positive way. (laughs) I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Mark, what was your precious moment of the past week? I'm very jealous hearing these stories of traveling. I'm currently unable to go further than three miles from my home and can leave my house for one hour a day of exercise. So that's the uh, longest. um, Thank you for the perspective, Mark, actually. (laughs) I can only walk with one other person from my family. I can't go far and I can't do much. All restaurants are shut, workplace shut. I can't go. Papers, if I had to go and do something. And so it's pretty bare bones, but actually God's been good in the midst of it. And the one thing that I've really appreciated is just the incredible sunsets and sunrises that we're getting at the moment, which I would always be busy and doing stuff and not noticed. And tonight was just absolute next level sort of Monet painting in the sky. So that is my precious moment. That's wonderful. That is great. Thank you. Seriously, though. Good good to know. And also, maybe this explains our divergent COVID rates. The different <laughs> <Yes>. rules <laughs> that are present in, or lack of rules, I guess, in some places. Where can people find you, Mark, on, online? Yeah, just Twitter at SaysMark or MarkSays.co. I say this is because of the pronunciation of Australians here and things like the, Ro- the Rohitic R. Constantly gets me, so I'm going to say it, but it might sound weird. So S-A-Y-E-R-S. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps, and the transcript is done by Boonmi Ashola. You can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you end up going on to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. We truly appreciate it. We also appreciate all the feedback that we get from all of you listeners who email us and have really shown that you've listened to the show time and time again and hear what our guests have to say. And thank you for those of you who send in constructive stuff. Truly appreciated. Thank you again for listening to the show and we will see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?